Please open your scriptures to uh, Matthew 7, uh, 27, rather. And as you open there, I just want to thank Henry for that prayer. That was deep and rich and enriching my soul. Thank you. There's a story that comes from the Middle Ages about a young woman who was expelled from heaven and told that she would be readmitted if she would bring back the one gift God valued most. First, she brought back drops of blood from a dying patriot, but she wasn't allowed back in. Next, she collected coins given by a destitute widow for the poor. But she was turned away. She then brought back a remnant of a Bible used by an eminent preacher. And then dust from the shoes of a missionary who had had served for years in a distant land. All these she brought back and more. But she was repeatedly turned away. Then one day as she was watching a small boy playing by a fountain... She saw a man ride up on horseback and dismount to get a drink. When he saw the boy, he thought about his own childlike innocence. He looked into the water of the fountain and he saw reflected in the water the face, his face hardened by sin. Overcome at that moment, He wept tears of repentance. The young woman took one of those tears back to heaven. And there she was received with joy. What is this medieval parable trying to teach us? I think it's trying to teach us there is but one way to salvation. Through repentance. Yet the natural man looks for great works. But God looks for simple, heartfelt repentance. But what is simple, heartfelt repentance? What is the type of repentance that God acknowledges? What is the type of repentance that opens the door to heaven. I think that is what our text today is trying to teach us. Look with me at the first ten verses of chapter 27 in Matthew. God's word there says, When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus and put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. 
And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and he hung himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them back into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them, bought with them, with it a field as burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, They took the thirty pieces of silver, the price on him whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for a potter's field, as the Lord had directed. Please pray with me. Father God, these are difficult verses. And we pray to you, Holy Spirit, that you will help us, that your promise to illuminate your scriptures to those whom you have indwelt be fulfilled in this very time. Help my words, Lord, however feeble and faulty they are, to bring light and life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Judas has betrayed Jesus. He's betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, the day before, the night before. He then came and identified Jesus, you remember, by, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He comes up and gives him a kiss. Jesus has already stood before the elders and the chief priest Caiaphas at this time. And he has just been given the death penalty by them. And Judas instantly regrets his decision. Instantly. Verse 3 says that when he saw that Jesus was condemned, we don't know, he might have been in the crowd in the courtyard with Peter looking in. But Judas knew that he was condemned. And it says there in verse 3 that he changed his mind. And he runs to the chief priests and, and elders, the chief priests and elders, and confesses, I have sinned. I have sinned. He doesn't say, I made a mistake. He says, I've sinned and betrayed innocent blood. And he gives back the 30 pieces of silver. I don't know about you, but that sounds an awful lot like repentance to me. That sounds an awful lot like what I do at home, what I do in my office, what I do when I drive around, living this life of repentance that we are to do as Christians. That sounds an awful lot like what I do. Does it sound an awful lot like what you do? In fact, both the NRSV and the King James Bible, right there in verse 3, Judas repented. However, there's, there's no doubt that Judas is in hell right now. There's no doubt. As a matter of fact, the chapter before, as Jesus was dipping his bread in the bowl at the upper room, he tells them that it would be better for this person who is going to betray him, it would be better for him never to have been born than to do what he is about to do. So what are we to do with Judas? I mean, more to the point, what are we to do with our own confessional life. What more does God want? When we sin, don't we feel remorse? 
I hope so. Don't we make amends? Don't we confess our sin? Since Judas did all that, it makes us question, is simple, heartfelt repentance not enough for God? Is the medieval parable that I just read off the mark? Is the saying wrong that we say all the time, there is no sin so great that God's forgiveness is greater still? Should we stop singing the hymn that says, Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin? Should we stop singing that? No, of course not. I think the answer to all of my questions and all of your questions about this text is, is answered in the text that we just read together. 2 Corinthians 7. It's in your bulletin. You can, you can look it up. But if you remember, here Paul is speaking of two kinds of sorrow. Two kinds of sorrow. And they look an awful lot alike. There's godly sorrow and there's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow, Paul says there, is true sorrow. It's heartfelt sorrow. It's repentant sorrow. It's sorrow that leads to salvation in life, he says. And then there's worldly sorrow. It's evil twin, if you will. And that is what Judas felt. Worldly sorrow. And it led to death and condemnation, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 7. But the problem that we struggle with on, a, on a, just a practical level is they look an awful lot alike in a life. It's hard to know if what I'm doing is godly sorrow, which we want to do. We want to have that kind of sorrow because that leads to repentance in life. Or worldly sorrow. It looks an awful lot like that, but it leads to death. It leads to, it's, it's, it's the path that, that Judas was on. But I think that as we take a closer look at our text today, we're able to see three ways in which worldly sorrow masquerades as godly sorrow. And the first way is worldly sorrow is remorse, not repentance. Worldly sorrow is remorse and not repentance. That's the first difference in the evil twin. It looks like it, but it's not. It's remorse, not repentance. And they're, they're very similar on the outside. As a matter of fact, Matthew helps us here a little bit. In verse 3, it says, When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. I think the translators are helping us there. King James is not very helpful here. The word changed his mind in Greek is the verb metamelethes. Metamelethes is translated sometimes as repent. It has that semantic range. But more commonly... 
it's translated remorse or to change one's mind. If Matthew wanted to communicate to us, his audience, that Judas was truly heartfelt repentant, he would have used the word that is used throughout Scripture in that, metanoia. But he doesn't. He uses that Greek word that is helpfully translated changed his mind and not changed his heart, repentance, to help us understand that. As a matter of fact, metanoia is, is what Paul is using in 2 Corinthians 7 when he's talking about godly sorrow. But, but it's still tricky because remorse looks an awful lot like repentance. But remorse is, as it says here, a change of mind, like Judas. Repentance is a change of heart, like King David in Psalm 51. Remorse is sorrow over consequences, like King Saul. Repentance is sorrow, at the the heart of it, it's sorrow over your depravity and your sinfulness. True repentance leads you to confess that your heart is rebellious, that your heart is selfish, that your heart is lustful, is hateful, is arrogant, is controlling, is idolatrous. That's where repentance leads you. True repentance, in true repentance, your guilt leads you to the foot of the cross. Worldly sorrow, remorse, leads you to despair. It leads you to despair. One podcast of This American Life host Ira Glass says this, Some regrets just never go away. People tell us they forgive us. We try to forgive ourselves, and we still know we did wrong. We hurt somebody. It's real. And that feeling, he says, can immobilize you. He says it's like a pebble in your shoe that teaches you nothing. It doesn't slow you down. It just hurts. It just hurts in a way that does not stop hurting. That's where worldly sorrow leads. Despair. That sin pebble that never goes away. If you have a sin pebble in your life that has never gone away, that's worldly sorrow. You might be remorseful over it and regret it, but it's still there. That's what remorse looks like. A sin pebble in your shoe that never stops hurting. There's no end. And it sends you into despair. And that despair needs to be alleviated. The pain needs to be dealt with. The sin pebble needs to be taken out. And that leads to our second difference. Worldly sorrow is penance, not dependence. Worldly sorrow is penance, not dependence. We try to remove the despair over and over, that sin pebble over and over, by doing penance. That's worldly sorrow. 
In the epic poem Persander, written 600 BC, Hercules is driven mad by the god Hera, and he kills his wife and children. Grief-stricken, he goes to the Oracle of Delphi, and she gives him the famous 12 labors to complete. I don't know if you've ever heard of this myth. So for 10 years, he labors to do things like kill the Nemean lion, to slay the nine-headed hydra at Lake Lerna, to clean King um, Aegeus' stables that house a thousand cattle for the last 10 years that has not been cleaned. He has to clean them. To capture Cerberus, that three-headed dog that, that guards the entrance to Hades. He does do all these 12 labors. And once he has completed these labors, he returns to the oracle and she forgives him because he's paid for his own sin. That's the heart of penance. You're paying for your own sin. That's how worldly sorrow works. It seeks a way to pay for it yourself. Again, look at Judas in verse 5. Look at Judas in verse 5. The elders give him no assurance. He runs to the elders first and they give him no assurance after his confession. The message says, what do we care? Deal with it yourself. Finding no forgiveness there, Judas runs to the temple and he runs through the court of women. He runs through the court of the Gentiles. He runs into the court of the priests where the brazen altar is, where the sacrifices were done. And he publicly throws the 30 pieces of silver. Brothers and sisters, he wanted everyone to see that he was sorry. That's another thing that worldly sorrow does. That's another thing that penance is. Everybody, do you see how sorry I am? That's worldly sorrow. That's penance before man. And isn't that what we do too? I mean, there's a little part in each of us that wants everybody else when we sin to know that we're sorry. Whether the sin was done publicly or privately, we want other people to, to see our penance. It, it looks in various, various forms, groveling, a downcast character. You know, a person comes in who's normally bright and cheery is, is all of a sudden today downcast. What's the matter? A self-loathing, a guilt over being joyful. I can't be joyful, I just sinned. Beating yourself up over and over and over again. Self-pity. These and many more are just indicators of worldly sorrow. But worldly sorrow sorrow doesn't need to stop there sometimes. You're so eager to get that that sin pebble out of your shoe, that, that despair that you're in. That just like Hercules, there must be more payment. What more can I do? I've done two labors. Can I please have a third? Can I please have a fourth? Can I please have a fifth? 
That's what Judas does. He goes through all that. And he pays for him his sin himself. That's what he's doing when he hangs himself. He's self-atoning. Suicide is not the unforgivable sin. But it is the ultimate form of penance. You see, worldly sorrow wants to pay for their sin. Penance is all about self-atonement. That's what penance is. It's all about, let me pay for my sin this way. Doing something to make you feel better. Anything, anything that you can do that you can point to, I've paid for my sin. Do you see? Worldly sorrow depends on no one. Depends on yourself. It depends on no one, but it's always asking, how can I show that I'm sorry? How can I, what labor can I do next? How can I pay for this sin myself? How can I get rid of this despair myself? You see, guilt over your sin, brothers and sisters, has to go somewhere. It's like those silly heads you buy in Toys R Us that have just enough air in them that you can squeeze them and and it pops out here or pops out down here. The, The sin has to be paid for somewhere. If you don't take it to the Lord, if you do not depend on Jesus Christ to bear the weight of your guilt, the only, only other place to go, there's only two places to go, is to Christ or yourself. The difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow is godly sorrow. There's no self-loathing. There's no self-pity. There's no form of self-serving, saving. See, in godly sorrow, in true repentance, you bring nothing to the party. It offers no excuses. You don't go to the Lord with excuses. Yes, I sin, but... You don't understand who this person is. You don't understand how deeply they've hurt me. It brings none of that. Simple, heartfelt repentance says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's the mantra of godly sorrow. Godly sorrow doesn't look inward, but looks outward. It fully looks to Jesus Christ to absorb the penalty, to absorb the despair, to remove the guilt. See, Judas had one thing right. He did. In this whole debacle, he had one thing right. Someone has to die for his sin. That's actually theologically quite astute. He just got it wrong. He thought he could die for his own sin. But the gospel says no. There is one who came to actually die, take the penalty for your sin. And that is the God-man Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is all about. That's why the gospel is 
good news. Because he actually does take on your penalty and dies in your place so that you can go from life to life. That's the beauty. And it sounds so simple. But it's so hard to do, isn't it? We want to atone for our sin. But Jesus will have none of it. Isaiah 53.5 says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Only through trusting that Jesus died in your place are your sins atoned for. You can't do labor after labor after labor. You can't be like her, Hercules. Only by fleeing to Christ are you healed. And that brings us to our third observation. Worldly sorrow is a 90 degree turn, not a 180 degree turn. Repentance has been described in many different ways throughout history. I read a new one this week that he wrote, Repentance is getting off a train going in one direction and getting on another going in the opposite direction. There's that 180. You've heard of repentance as turning all the way around and going in a different direction. That's what biblical repentance is. But if we look closely at our text, we actually see that biblical repentance takes two 90-degree arcs to complete. Dr. Walt Kaiser, who is the past president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and an Old Testament scholar, he once told of a young man that he counseled years before. The man was a was a, had been a distinguished surgeon, but he had made a wreck of his life through drinking, which led to the loss of his job, the loss of his home, and the loss of his wife and children. He had turned to Dr. Kaiser for help, and Kaiser told him to pray and ask God for forgiveness. The man turned to him and said, I, I don't know how to pray. And Kaiser said, well, just talk to God like you're talking to me. And so this surgeon bowed his head and started to tell of all the terrible things he had done over the years, the mistakes he had made. He prayed for 15 minutes this way. Then suddenly the man stopped. And Dr. Kaiser said, well, go on. That's all well and good what you just said, but you, you have to... Ask, ask Christ for forgiveness and ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. The man suddenly sat right up, squared his shoulders and shouted at Kaiser, No, that's the one thing I will never do. I will never ask for forgiveness. That man actually did 
exactly what Judas did. He turned 90 degrees. That's it. He identified his sin quite well. Just like Judas did. I have betrayed innocent blood. I have sinned. But he didn't complete the ark. Look at verse 4. There Judas says, I have sinned. He knows he has sinned. Just like we do. And again, this is what makes the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. When you and I sin, we know it. Most of the time we do. We're jealous of another person, and so we slander them in private. We want to feel better than others, so we we gossip. We want our own way, and when we don't get it, anger wells up and explodes all over the room. We're hurt, so we just give the cold shoulder to that person. We lust, and we click on that link. We know when we sin, and we confess it. We turn that 90 degrees. We confess it. We identify it just as Judas does here. But do we complete the ark? Judas never did. He never went the 90 degrees and fled to Christ. Do you see who he fled to here? The chief priests and elders. Please forgive me. Forgive me, Caiaphas. Brothers and sisters, I think this is exactly why if you take your Bible and you just look at it, this is exactly why Peter's denial is right next to Judas's. It's to teach us how to complete the ark. Don't just go 90 degrees. Keep going. Flee to Christ. In Peter, we see an incredibly sweet picture. If you want to turn there, you can, to John 21. There we see that the disciples have returned to fishing after Jesus' crucifixion. And they're on the boat a little ways from shore. And John, the disciple John, looks to the shore and he sees a man there. And he he recognizes him and he says, It's the Lord. And what happens next tells it all. It's the difference between Judas and Peter. It says there that Peter, who had just days before, by an oath, by an oath, denied knowing. Jesus, who had sinned and turned his back on his dear friend. Do you know what he did? You can read it right there. As soon as John identifies him, what does he do? He wraps his garments around him and he jumps. And he swims for Christ. He can't even wait for the boat to dock. 
He runs to Jesus with all of his might, with all of his sin, with all of his despair. He can't wait to be back in the presence of Christ. You know what the difference is between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow? It's that 90 degrees. Worldly sorrow stays away. It might confess it all. You might be like that surgeon, confessing, confessing, confessing. But you have to flee to Christ. Because it's only in His presence that you'll receive true forgiveness. That that sin pebble is taken out. That the despair is taken away. That the guilt is assuaged. That joy returns. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you have shown us today what it is like to truly have heartfelt, simple repentance that leads to life. Help all of us, Lord, put this into effect. Help us not just to stay at the 90 degree mark that's so easy for us, but help us, Lord, to flee to you in your presence only is there true forgiveness acceptance love sonship life it's in your name we pray Christ Amen